today we have this agricultural passage, and I figured it would be really fitting if I had an actual farmer read a passage where Jesus is using a metaphor um, to describe this relationship. And Phil, I found out this morning, has been farming filberts in Oregon since 1960. And I said, when did you start farming? And he, he told me when he was one week old, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> probably pretty close. Um, but thank you so much. Uh, this is my first sermon back from sabbatical. And I just want to say from the very top, thank you for supporting me going away. And thank you for welcoming me back. Not everyone's work has a sabbatical possibility built into it. But after experiencing this rare and precious gift, I think it should. I think every job should have a sabbatical option. In fact, one of the books, one of the many books I read about rest while I was on sabbatical, um, one of them had a dedication at the beginning. And it said something to the effect of, to everyone in ministry who would have kept going longer if they'd just been given a break. And I think it's really true. It's this very special gift. So today's sermon will be a little different in that it will partly be some of my takeaways from sabbatical and partly focusing on spiritual formation as we segue into our next formation series, Fasting, which Scott mentioned. So I've been getting this question, how was your sabbatical? And it's hard for me to answer. Do you ever feel like when you go on vacation, or you have a break, and there's like all this expectation and it's kind of that hurry up and rest? And then you feel like people ask you and you want to say all of, you want to say good stuff. You want to sound grateful, but usually there's hard stuff too. You know, like family vacations are um, a business trip sometimes. <laughs> and so I've learned that every time we think we're completely alone and we think we're the only person things are happening to is exactly when we need to remember that the human experience is rarely a singular experience. It's why the Psalms are so beloved. We read the Psalms and we think, oh, I'm not the only one. I'm not crazy. I'm not the only one who's felt this or thought this or experienced this. So I'm hoping today in sharing that it resonates with hopefully most of you and is a reminder that you're not alone. And my hope today is kind of like in kindergarten, we do show and tell and we'd bring something. My hope is that I show and tell you about my sabbatical so that I can show and tell you about Jesus. And I'd just like to pray as we begin. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let your word illuminate us. In Jesus' name, amen. My sabbatical was a quieter, smaller, slower world than what my normal world is, and I loved it. <laughs> Author Ruth Haley Barton uses images about sabbatical or just Sabbath to um, mean womb, like being in a mother's womb or cocoon. And I feel that way right now. I feel a little bit socially awkward. <laughs> you know, when you like, remember after COVID and like people coming out and si seeing each other for the first time, like I literally said the most awkward thing the other day. I'm not even going to tell you, waste time with it. But where I just thought, I feel socially awkward right now because I've been in this little protective womb. My friend Jamie says that sabbatical is like landing a plane that's been going really fast for a really long time and that you need a long runway to slow down. And that could not have been more accurate. My sabbatical was bookended at the beginning and the end. 
by memorial services of three dearly loved people that all died far younger than all of us would have liked, special people that modeled Jesus to myself and so many others, people that had championed me in my music and in my life, and that I still wonder this side of eternity, why? During my sabbatical, my mom moved out of state to where my brother is, and sabbatical afforded me the time and this gift to be able to help her put her house on the market, to get it ready to sell, and then very recently helping her pack up for this huge, significant move, an adventure that I hope brings her so much joy, and I know she's watching online today from a different state. Summer is without a doubt my favorite season. I want you all to know today's what, the 17th? We still have four more days, you guys. So all of you pumpkin spice people, lighting cinnamon and wearing plaid, I love you. I dearly love you, but I want you to know summer is the best. And there's still four more days until the solstice. And when you work at a church, it's a wild concept to be gone on a Saturday. Like to be able to leave and go out of town on a Saturday night, you kind of feel like a rebel. And I got to do it multiple times with my family. I floated three different rivers. I spent a lot of time outside. And the biggest highlight, which you'll see on the screen, was a trip to Arizona where my family and I had really lazy days by a pool, reading books, making smoothies. We did a day trip to Sedona. Has anyone been to Sedona in here? Yes. Okay, it's what they patterned the Cars movie after. And no joke, we were driving past this Red Rock. We cranked the Cars soundtrack in our car, Rascal Flats. It was so good. And we all experienced the Grand Canyon for the first time. All five of us, none of us had seen it before. We actually made our kids wake up at 4.30 in the morning. I won't tell you how lovely that was. And uh, we hiked a mile down into the Grand Canyon to this spot called Ooh-Ah Point, because you ooh and ah. My husband made, built that dad joke in the whole mile down. Ooh-Ah the whole time. But um, my friend Lanny, who has a way with words, she says this about sunsets at the beach that she loves the pause that takes place when a bunch of strangers stand still, silently watching. And she wrote, the quiet agreement is almost as beautiful as the sunset itself. And the Grand Canyon is like that. I was struck by how many, like hundreds of strangers are just staring in quiet agreement. And it seems to be saying, I'm in awe of God and God is really cool. On sabbatical, I finished the Bible in a year on audio. I'd never done the Bible chronologically on audio before. It was about 20 minutes a day, and I will just tell you, I did the Bible in a year and five months. <laughs> so if you ever feel like just, I don't know, a failure at stuff, and like you start and then you know just feel defeated, we don't have, it doesn't have to be perfect. I did it five days a week because it's hard for me to like come to church like this and retain scripture and then go listen to a different scripture, and I just want it to soak in. So I did it five days a week, and I, the math for you is you'll be done in about a year and four or five months. <clears throat> but it was such a sweet, sweet time of just hearing the word of God. About a half of my sabbatical was spent dealing with a herniated disc in my back. Has anyone had stuff like that before? Or like sciatica stuff? I, I know you literally feel me. <laughs> I haven't had a flare-up like this in about eight years. And it was to the point where it was hard to stand up straight, hard to walk. So one day I was getting a massage from this lovely lady named Sarah who helps me. And she said to me, I'd like to give you a relaxation massage, but what you really need is deep tissue. And that sentence is what I think 
sums up my sabbatical best. I really thought maybe this will be like just three months of relaxation, but it was really more of a deep tissue massage. In fact, my massage lady, she has these things called cupping. You've probably seen them on like athletes, these little rubber things, and they, they basically bring the blood flow to the spots that have not had great circulation. You know it's working if you leave with spots on your back temporarily. But that's what this was like for me, letting the Lord untangle some of these knots that have built up. For me, God speaks through my senses. I'm a very like sensory person. Um, I think that's the musician and the creative in me. And about a month into sabbatical where I was feeling that hurry up and rest feeling, I was walking, I was listening to my Bible in a year, and I walked past blackberries. At the time, they were the flowering part with the white flowers at the very beginning of the blackberry season. And I really clearly heard from the Lord, and I don't mean this if you're, if you're wondering what this means. It wasn't like an audible voice. It was like an outside of my own mind voice. While I was staring at the blackberries, say, withdraw from as much as possible until the blackberries are ripe. And it was this visual, because I literally, we have blackberries in our yard, because, you know, they grow everywhere. And I was walking by them every day, and it was like the Lord said, this is the pace that you need to go. You need to withdraw until these things are ready to make pie. <laughs> and really, to do a self-audit of the voices that are telling me who I am. And so as the blackberries continue on, I would walk by them and I would see them and I would kind of think like there's different parts of me that feel really not ripe and there's parts that feel riper, there's parts that I need to assess. Eventually they got to the point where, you know, you can make pie out of them, which is the very best part. <laughs> and I totally burned the edges, but you know, like I said, nothing's perfect. <laughs> For me, the specific things that the Lord was calling me withdraw from were work, obviously, relationships, and technology, those three things. Part of this self-audit was assessing boundaries. When you are going really fast for really long, I don't even know that you can pay attention to your body. I don't know if you can pay attention to your soul. And as a person in a helping profession, which I know many of you are, we always feel we should do more because there is always more to do. And eventually, we crash against the wall of human limitation so ultimately, the very humbling question for me was, am I trusting God to run the world? Or am I just a control freak? <laughs> the reality also is that technology has too much power and is often the loudest voice telling us about our identity. So I went off social media for three months. I only hopped on to see my sweet little God babies in Texas <laughs> occasionally. And I really tried to be off my phone for the most part in general for three months. So if I didn't text you back, that's why. <laughs> because I just kept watching the blackberries and thinking they're not ripe yet. I was blessed to meet over Zoom with a pastor in California who did some sabbatical coaching and spiritual direction for me. He's incredible at his job and I called him Yoda the whole summer. <laughs> and what he said to me, not even knowing that I love track, that I coach track, he said, Olivia, I want you to take a lap around the identity track. Who are you putting the most stock into about who you are, he asked me. He said, we are human beings, not human doings. And this is the ultimate gift of rest, not just sabbatical, but Sabbath, just building in rest that you get to be and not do. So ultimately, as I was going through all of these, you know, deep tissue massages, the main question that surfaced for me, if I'm being very transparent with you, is 
will people still love me if I'm not helping them? And I would ask you right now just to pause and what's the gut instinct? If you were to fill in the sentence, will people still love me if, fill in the blank for you, what would that be? And as honest of a question as it is, I don't even really know it's the right question. It's a starting point to get to the heart of it all and reveal what muscle isn't getting the blood flow, which knot needs to be untangled. And the biggest knot, I know for me and probably for most of us, that needs untangling is identity. Jesus' words in John 15 that Phil read this morning answer this question about identity. It's not the fruit, right, that are my identity and life source. The fruit isn't going to keep me alive. It's the vine. Jesus' words in John 15 are that massage, untangling the identity knots. And when he says, remain in me, remain in my words, and remain in my love. And then in verse 10, he says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Which leads me to ask, what are those commands? If that is kind of the, the hinge point of remaining, what are those things? And so I was reading about John 15 this summer um, from an author named Hosanna Wong. And she decided to ask a farmer, to ask a grape farmer, what is the relationship between vine and branches? And for context, before I tell you what they said, this farmer doesn't know the Lord, hasn't read John 15, so there's no power of suggestion when, when they're giving an answer. And they said this, all branches need to live is to be connected to the vine. But they also need a trellis, a structure to help them grow and flourish and stay connected to the vine. This is a picture of literally just down the road. We live in a beautiful place, do we not? And then this, this farmer went on to say, without a structure, the branches will live their lives constantly weighed down. The branches will fight an uphill battle. They don't have to fight because branches need a structure. And this got me thinking because I had a plant in my bedroom that I've kept alive for three years, y'all. It's amazing. It's really a miracle. I feel like adults, to me, this is going to sound ridiculous, but adults do two things. They can keep a plant alive and they drink black coffee. And I cannot drink black coffee. It's all cream and sugar and this much coffee. I literally get embarrassed making it out there in front of people. Um, and they can keep plants alive. I somehow have kept this plant alive for three years in our bedroom, but lately, I've been worried about it because I feel like it's going to break because it's getting so heavy. So I'm reading this. I'm thinking about this actual plant in my room. And then I read it, and I'm like, this is exactly what it needs. It needs some structure so the branches aren't as way down. And as I kept reading more about farming and grapes, I, re I read that eventually these branches would go to the ground where the dirt is, where the, all the bugs and the pests hang out. And then the bugs would start to eat at it if it's not kept upright. And then I read also that if it's hanging down too low, it's not going to get as much sunlight. And then it's going to be in danger for um, you know, rotting and mold and all that kind of stuff. And I just thought, man, that is like, that's how I've been feeling. And so all of these, these structures, these commands that Jesus gives us like to rest, to pray, to stay in scripture, to stay in the word. They're, these are these things that are gonna keep us close to him. And obviously, it's, this is not salvation. The trellis, for all intents and purposes, is a piece of wood. It's a stick, right? 
This is not where our salvation is. Our salvation is in the vine. Our life is in the vine. But we need this structure, and that's what, that's what spiritual get, disciplines and formation are to keep us from just getting weighed down by the world. Jesus is the vine, and we as believers are the branches. And this trellis allows the branches to flourish to their full potential so that when we feel like we're fighting an uphill battle, these spiritual structures will lift us up and reconnect us to Jesus. So how did Jesus live in private so he was able to know who he was, so his identity was secure in the vine and not in the world, and live as who he was in public? And that's where we get these words um, that we've been using recently called formation. Now, if you have been around you know, the church or even for any length of time, you may have heard some of these other words that are used as synonyms for formation. Discipleship, spiritual disciplines, sacred rhythms, spiritual growth. They're all talking about the same thing, being with Jesus and living with, like Jesus. I think over the years, sometimes our, our language grows and changes because there's different connotations. And obviously, in a church, we want only the healthy connotations, the right connotations. In fact, I remember when I was a brand new parent, and I've mentioned this before in here, I'm, you, know, you just overthink everything. At least I did. You know, how am I, I got to do it the right way. You're just really concerned about that. And so when our oldest started getting old enough to disobey and do weird things like take a nail file to our brand new flat screen TV. You know, I'm serious. Yeah, it was during the Olympics, I remember. We sold that TV later and I had to full disclosure tell them about the, you know, the crack in the middle. But I remember thinking like, we have to come up with a game plan about how to discipline her. And I didn't want to use the word discipline. I remember even thinking that when she was like two because I didn't want her to think discipline was bad. And so I started using the word correction because I wanted discipline to be saved for the things like, you know, the, thing, the commands of God, like the good disciplines, like Sabbath and giving and hospitality and generosity, all those things. So I just started saying correction. And then she knew that was like not a good thing. Timeouts, you know, taking stuff away, all of the things you do as a parent. And then one day I was driving down the road way too fast and all of a sudden the lights are behind me. You know, I'm getting pulled over. She's three years old in the back seat. And while the police officer is like running my license and I'm just like trying not to cry, she says from the back of the minivan, Mommy, are you getting a correction? <laughs> yes, I am. It's $220 of a correction. But discipline isn't bad, right? We disciples, the root word of disciple is from discipline, the same thing. So formation, whenever, when you hear these words, they all mean the same thing. Being with Jesus and living like Jesus. These commands, these, these things that are going to keep us close to him are good. And I want to read you John 15 again, this time from the paraphrase known as the message by Eugene Peterson. It says this, live in me, make your home in me just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only by being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. I am the vine, you are the branches. When you're joined with me and I with you, the relationship is intimate and organic. The harvest is sure to be abundant. Separated, you can't produce a thing. Anyone who separates from me is dead wood, gathered up and thrown on the bonfire. But if you make yourselves at home with me and my words are at home in you, 
you can be sure that whatever you ask will be listened to and acted upon. This is how my father shows who he is. When you produce grapes, you mature as my disciples. I've loved you the way my father has loved me. Make yourselves at home in my love. This is that identity. And then he says, if you keep my commands, you'll remain intimately at home in my love. That's what I've done. Kept my father's commands and made myself at home in his love. I've told you these things for a purpose that my joy might be your joy and your joy wholly mature. Don't we want that wholly mature joy, real joy, not happiness, joy? So I will just tell you that I have two concerns when we talk about spiritual formation at church, and today I get to tell you them. (laughs) Um, And they're just the things that I worry about as a person in ministry when we talk about formation and that I, I don't want to happen. The first is that people will think we're talking about rules and getting all legalistic and that they'll feel guilt and shame for not doing them. And if you look at the past, I mean, since Phil's had an orchard, since 1960, if you were to look at the pendulum of our culture, even in just church culture around, you know, at least in the Western world, there's been this pendulum swing constantly of like extreme legalism and rules, think Pharisees, think people arguing over whether or not you should dance, all the way to licentiousness, which is just doing whatever you want. Right? There's no moral code um, and, and basically just people having a disregard for anything that has to do with Jesus. Licentiousness comes from the word license, meaning you have license to do whatever you want. And then there's this gap between what we believe and how we're living. And as Paul says, everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And so I get worried that people are going to think, man, we're going to a legalistic you know, side, which is not true. But it's I, I think we're all sensitive to that because of how you maybe your, your lived experience or how you grew up or all the rules that were in place that made you feel not good enough. And so then they, it just starts to just create um, these, the, the, the trellis starts to become the God, right? The little G God, and that is not the life source. When my husband and I first started dating and we were kind of sharing our stories and you get to the point where you're like, this might, this might end up being serious. Maybe we should give some backstory. Just open up the suitcases and let them know what they're inheriting. And so we were sharing about our own faith journeys and my husband came to know the Lord when he was a senior in high school. And so when he's telling me about this transformation in his life, when he was 17, 18 years old, he told me, and this is like on, I don't know, early on in our relationship, we're still dating. And I tried to keep a straight face, but he said that he decided to get rid of all of his mainstream, like secular music. And just to clarify, like he's a decade, about a decade younger. I mean, young, why did I say younger? Older. He's older than me. <laughs> anyway, so he grew up like in the in the 80s, right? I was more like 90s, go 90s. And so he's telling me he got rid of Bon, bon Jovi, Def Leppard. And he's just going on, and I'm trying to be like, that's, I mean, I'm so proud of you for just making a 180. But the musician in me was like, you got rid of living on a prayer? Like, <laughs> on tape? I mean, it has the word prayer in it. And, but he was telling me about all this stuff. The funniest part is that he said he didn't get rid of Huey Lewis and the news, and that he saved it, but he didn't listen to it. Also, side note, if you ever want to know Pastor Scott's number one karaoke song, it's Huey Lewis and the News. I'm just going to tell you that. It's so good. The heart of rock and roll, right, Scott? Where are you? Yes. <laughs> Speaking of dancing. 
you might need to listen to it. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, just stream it on the way home. It'll come up as the number one he will lose in the news, I promise. But in his mind, nobody had told him, you gotta get rid of this stuff, uh, you know. But that's sometimes my concern is that, you know, people will think Christians can't have fun. All of the things you see portrayed on TV and movies that, that ache my soul. And so that's one of my concerns is that people will think we're going legalistic. The second concern I have is that people will be intimidated by spiritual practices and like they just don't belong because they don't know how to do it. And they'll feel kind of this imposter syndrome. And so they won't try because it all feels so overwhelming and hard. And so this summer, my, one of my daughters decided she wanted to go to the weight room at George Fox. And she hadn't really ever been in there before. She didn't know the names of the weights or the exercises. And she just said to me, I just feel really intimidated. I don't even know what to do in here. And you know when you kind of feel like everyone's looking at you, but they're not, but you feel like that. And I said, I think that people feel like that when they go to church. I think people feel like that about spiritual disciplines and practices. Like, I don't even know what the names of these things are. I don't know how to do them. And so then you just kind of, you just walk out. You don't do it. So I'd love to just have some audience participation for a second. What are areas in life, like a weight room, that any of you feel intimidated by or imposter syndrome when you just think, I, I don't know what I'm doing? What, what's that? Excel. Excel. Thank you, Butch. <laughs> Other ones. That's an excellent example. What are, just little things. Anybody, just yell them out. Parallel parking. Parallel parking. Parenting. Parenting. Yes. What other stuff? Anybody? It can be something little. Cooking. Cooking. Yes. See, we're not alone. You're not alone. I, know, I feel that way. My daughter's a barista, and I have no idea how to do any of that. Like I said, I just dump a bunch of cream in. But I think we, all of us have these areas where we feel super intimidated. And then when it comes to spiritual practices, especially like fasting, you're thinking, how do I do this? So then we just don't try. So those are my two concerns, that people will feel intimidated and that people um, will fear legalism. And what I want to say to you today, um, if, I, if I could look at each one of you and talk to each one of you and just be like a mom holding your face, I would say you belong in the family of God. You belong, not because of what you do, but because you are made in the image of God, and you are beloved. What's interesting is that my daughter ended up, the one that was in the weight room feeling intimidated, she ended up taking a weights class for the last two weeks at school. And she came home and she was like, guess what? My muscles are sore and I'm figuring it out. I learned the names of stuff and I'm not so scared anymore. And that is our hope as we dive in as a church family into some of these spiritual practices like we've done Sabbath and we've done prayer, is that you will just know you belong and that all of these things are just meant to keep us close to the vine, the life source, our identity. I'd like to invite the worship team back up as we close today. And I just invite you to all stand where you're at and kind of just readjust if you've been sitting just shake your shoulders out and I just invite you if you like to open your hands as I read this prayer as a physical offering with our body our mind and our spirit and I'm going to pray Romans 12 as a paraphrase as a prayer over us 
So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your eyes and your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. The only way, the only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what he does for us, not by what we are and what we do for him. Jesus, I just ask that you would seal these words in our bodies, in our minds, in our spirits, that our identity would be only defined by how much you love us and what you've done for us, Lord, and that we would live in the security and the blessed assurance of that. In Jesus' name, amen.